You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, greetings, everyone. Uh, Once again, you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. Today, we're going to take a journey into the realm of startup businesses. As I looked at my archives, I realized I haven't really had anything on this show talking about the startup game. I know in my own coaching practice, I tend not to work with startup folks, not that I think anything bad about them by any means. Uh, everybody's got to start somewhere, right? But it is a an area that is very important to the long-term growth of the economies everywhere. And my guest is a lady named Jan Cavell. She focuses on the startup and early stage scale-up companies. So we're going to pick her brain and uh, hear a little bit about best practices for startup. Jan, welcome to the show. Doug, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Yeah, happy happy to have you. Uh, you uh, folks might detect a bit of an accent. Uh, tell us where <laughs> you're located. Just a touch of a UK accent going on here. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, we do have a bit of a custom here. I like to ask my guests to give us a little bit of backstory of your journey that has brought you to this place and your passion and focus on how you're helping people today. So what is your backstory, Jan? Well, my backstory, Doug, is that I've had over the long years, I've had quite a few startup businesses of my own. And on one particular one, I grew up, grew um, up to about 50, 50 odd staff from a kitchen table startup. And uh, particularly when we're talking leadership, but in all aspects of business, that was, as you can imagine, a, a pretty uh, eye-opening, bumpy, exciting, mixed journey. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, it became fascinating to me as I got further on in, in my career of doing that, because I got involved in writing and I wrote articles for magazines originally. And I got very obsessed with, you know, the whole process of growth, that transformation from your tiny company to an early scale company and what was necessary to make that work. And so as the writing expanded and I decided to step back from business, I got involved almost for pleasure with writing as a thesis on on this subject of of the transformation. And then, of course, it dawned to me that really there was a lot of material there and I should do something useful with it. And uh, so by chance and, and luck and immense gratitude, I got a contract with Bloomsbury Publishing, became a book, and that was my first book. And so I've gone on from there to, to write more and other books and what have you, but all to help startups and early scale, because I think there's a lot, particularly surrounding the growth problems, but isn't so highlighted. And hopefully I can do some good there. Right. Well, as most of my listeners know, I I do have a long chapter in my prior experience as a banker, and I definitely watched entrepreneurs who put ideas together and brought them to life as a business. 
and inevitably, I, I'm going to make this summation statement about all that. Inevitably, the entrepreneur or founder that has a great idea goes into the game mostly with just that and, and without a lot of other uh, tools in the tool bag, so to speak, on how to really turn that into a viable ongoing business. And I, I, I'm sure your books and your work talk about <clears throat> some of the early stage steps and things that do happen, and, and, and that's what we'll go into. But so I guess I want to start with, with just that. What has been your experience? Is, is there a normal pattern of what you see with startup founders? And, Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, up to maybe 10, 12 people, you can probably manage to model through with a very startup mindset, that creativity, that fun, that craziness, and everybody pitching in. Uh, and that gives you a fantastic energy, actually. But above that, you have to morph into something different. You know, as you rightly say, you've got a whole lot more things in the toolbox that are needed. And probably more than anything, that's asked of the leader, the, the, the founder. And it's, I think it's quite difficult because, you know, if you're the founder and you've had this amazing idea, then, you know, you, you're very possessive about it. It's your company. And all of a sudden, you might not be very good at it. At running it um, and so there's an awful lot of personal development and facing up to that illuminating fact that you don't know what you're doing has to go on and and some people of course you know particularly with investment um, bring in other CEOs who are experienced because it is a new skill set but if you're not going to do that and there is this tendency now for founders to slap founder and CEO without any knowledge uh, you know, then you're just going to have to do an awful lot of work about self-development, as as well as lots of things to the company to strategize. Right. It it really comes down to a a mindset shift, and I, I think I, I know a lot of very particularly in the creative realm, and and, and when I speak creative, I I will include technology because I count those guys as pretty heavy creators. You you come in with that energy and that pep and that excitement about the idea, but you, all the stuff to run a company, you know, figuring out payroll, figuring out banking, figuring out facility, figuring out you know resources, it 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 starts to feel like a burden and and something that's taking you away from that creative vibe that you've got, and uh, that's where. That, that, in my experience, that's the first place a founder inevitably starts to, you know, waffle a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Doug. You know, it's it's that curious thing. I've got to hang on to it because it's my company. Uh, and yet, you know, you're doing all these things that you hate doing, actually. You know, creative, inventive ideas people are not the people who are good at that sort of stuff of a payroll or whatever you know so it's the sensible ones the experienced ones and the ones who develop actually learn they've got to let it go right. um, and the others get into trouble you're right mm -hmm. flounder 
Somewhere along the way, somebody taught me the phrase that when you're an entrepreneur in a startup mode like that, CEO means chief everything officer. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's what the non-experienced ones try to be. And of course, you know, this thing is taking off. It's growing at a pace and, you know, you're firefighting everywhere and you're making a mess of it because, you know, you can't do everything all of a sudden. You can't even run you know 50 people on your own whereas you could probably run 12 quite efficiently and support them and do a good job on leadership but 50 you can't do and and run the company and do the payroll and look after the clients crazy you know you can't do it right so what are some of the things that you work with entrepreneurs and in the startup mode what are some of the first steps that you guide people through i think the first thing they've got to do is recognize that actually that you know they are building if they want to that you know they're going to have to adapt and change and if not they're going to say to themselves Actually, I had the greatest of fun and I'll keep some share in the company, but, you know, actually I'm going to let go. So it's that choice, I think, is really important. And and that's terribly hard to make because most of the founders, myself included, clung on because it's my baby, um, you know, and, and just go over the same old ground, working ourselves and the company into the ground. So, so that's probably the biggest first step. And once you've decided that, that point is then so exciting because you can move forward and strategize and plan what you're going to do, plan how you're going to get the other people in that you will need at a bigger size, plan how you're going to finance that, what resources are needed. And yeah, it gets great fun again then. Yeah. I know there have been several books written about just the entrepreneur journey in general, and uh, one that pops to my mind in context of what we're talking about here is Gino Wickman's famous traction book where he uh, introduces the entrepreneur operating system. And there's a whole section in there that he speaks about the identification of roles. And what he's talking about, if I'm recalling it correctly, is that there is a role as visionary, but that's not necessarily the the chief executioner or the, exe- the person that goes out and executes on things. And one of the early hurdles might be for a founder to consider separating those two roles. And if if you know you want to take that pride of ownership and creation in, in the so fine, stay in the visionary role but hire that CEO to come in and, and go execute on the vision and, and make things happen or help make things happen. I think that's absolutely right. There's this assumption. I mean, it's very much what happened to Steve Jobs, isn't it? He had to go away and think about the tra- transforming himself in, in many ways because, you know, people who are wildly creative are not necessarily people people you know they love to do what they do but they might not inspire other people and that's what you need it's it's that visionary capacity so you're either going to have to learn how to do it or get somebody else to do it because otherwise you can't bring all the stakeholders including your team most of all with you on the journey you're just not gonna make them want to get out of bed in the morning yeah 
There's a great story that I've shared a couple of times. One of my guests on an episode last year shared this. She had a client in New York City that had grown a, a tech company and had gotten some traction and, and had moved up in sales volumes. And I, I, if I'm recalling it correctly, I think they were already up to 20-something, 20-plus people. And one day, one of the leads came into the founder's office and said, uh, hey, boss, we're in a good place right now. We're 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 kind of cranking. What do you think about just shutting down for the afternoon, going down the street to the coffee shop, and just having a little sort of company celebration? The boss said, "You know, that's a great idea. Let's do that." And so he walks out and tells everybody, "Shut it down, shut it down. We're going to go take a break." So they go down to the coffee shop. They all get their beverages. They're sitting there. This lead then speaks up and says, "Well, we have another reason for we wanting to do this." We have been talking and call this an intervention, but we have a list of things we would like you to consider for the greater good of the, the future of the company. And he goes, wow. okay. And they start off with, you're a micromanager, you know, give us the grace, give us the latitude, believe in us. I think we've proven ourselves, uh, you know, let us run more free with your idea here. And and then he goes, well, that's fascinating. Okay, what else do you have? And he, you know, really took it in as the story goes, which, you know, sidebar comment, you know, really proved an incredibly high degree of emotional intelligence, right, for yeah. not being threatened or not being offended or not being upset about that, but rather taking the moment, take it all in. And he basically told him when they were done, he said, I'm going to go think about all these things and I will get back to you with my answers. And he came back a couple of days later, had the same list. And he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. And here's my part here. Here's your part there. Da, 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 da. Went through the whole list, made a commitment and it just skyrocketed the company to the next level. And so you know, kudos to the lead there and the people for having the belief that they could do that. So kudos to the founder for the little bit of culture and environment he had created where they felt comfortable doing that. And again, credit to him for taking it all in and being willing to make the pivot and make the adjustments to allow that to happen. Absolutely. It's credit, <clears throat> credit all round, isn't it? Because, um, you know, to, to get your team to innovate like that, you have to create a really safe culture that they feel they can throw ideas around, that they won't get shouted at, laughed at, or any other unpleasant experience. But however silly their idea is, they'll get encouraged to do it. And not all, all people create that safe environment. And I think also, I love what you say about micromanagement, because it's my absolute pet hate. I think it's it kills innovation for a start. But it just is such a demotivator. You know, I remember um, getting involved with a publicity company um, for one of my books. And the, sorry, I'm going croaky. And the late, the first thing, I'm going to have to cough. So I'm so sorry, Doug. Go ahead. <clears throat> The first thing the um, the, the uh, lady said to me was, you know, you've got to CC all your emails to me. And I went, what? 
why have I got a CC of your emails? Oh, because I need to know what's going on. And I thought, you don't actually know what's going on in your own world. If you've got time for everybody you work for to solemnly send all their emails, you know, this is a control thing. The people who micromanage are terrified of not having that control. And the good leaders actually let go and do what your um, people did for, in your story and say, you guys, you know, we trust you. And I, you know, we want to hear your ideas and then we want you to do the execution. We're standing back. And I really hope that's one of the good things that's coming out of the last two or three years with, with the pandemic, that a lot of micromanagers have had to learn that that's not the way to go because they couldn't do it remotely. You know, they couldn't be at everybody's side demanding 64, 64 CC'd emails and looking into people's windows and checking in when they were working, they actually had to transfer to a method of saying, here is your task and we will assess you on how that's done. You go away and do it your way. Yeah, I, uh, as you were saying that, I was also reminded, uh, I think it was um, Lori Grenier on Shark Tank that's attributed with this quote. She says, an entrepreneur is the only person on the planet that will give up a 40-hour paycheck to work 80 hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And, you know, I think it's it's a worry that <clears throat> with some of the where, wherever we've got to now, the Gen Z, you know, they are so obsessed with we must have better quality of life and everything, which is great. But, you know, I've also had lots of them say to me, well, you know, obviously I'm not going to work myself into the ground and I'm going to restrict the hours I work and I'm only going to do this and I'm only going to do that. And somebody was telling me the other day I'd have to work hard and I'm just not having that. And my company is going to be a wonderful success. And I'm thinking, well, good luck to you, dear. But, you know, honestly, I don't think you're I don't see how it can be done. You've got to work hard to get a start off of a startup off the ground. It's a very good idea to look after yourself properly, which is a very different matter. But right, uh, right. you're going to work hard. Right. You know, speaking of all that, the, the work-life balance, the harmony and everything, and, and as again, as many of my listeners know, I've abandoned the word work-life balance, that phrase. I've, if, if I've learned anything from the pandemic, I think the idea of harmony is a better mind picture to follow because we've got our work activities and our home life going on simultaneously. So how do you harmonize that as opposed to uh, the word balance in my book indicates giving something up for the benefit of something else. And I don't think you're, I don't think the healthy arrangement is to give anything up. You, you have to allow it to coexist and, and figure out that harmony of, of being able to participate and execute on both sides. I think that's lovely. I really like that idea. I hadn't heard anybody use harmony before, and I think it's it's really good. Um, and, and you are so right, and that is one of the changes, you know, with um, the pandemic, that people had to have an all-inclusive life, isn't it, really, with, with both going on. Um, and I love the idea of harmony, yeah. And if, if you take that, 
analogy even further, you realize that part of maintaining that harmony is finding that personal time, that that ability to get away from it all and recharge your battery. I use the word recalibrate. You know, you yeah. when a machine runs at full capacity for too long. Uh, the gears and mechanisms get out of alignment. They get loose and wobbly. They've got to get tightened up. They got to get relubricated. They have to, uh, you know, be adjusted. And all good manufacturers know that, and and they deal with that. They have planned downtime on their machines to prevent catastrophic downtime by a by a colossal breakdown. So. I think the same can be said for entrepreneurs. You, you are a kind of a machine as well, and <laughs> you've got to plan that downtime periodically, yeah, so that you can go recalibrate and rejuvenate. Very much so, and I think it's something I I talk a lot to, particularly to, dare I say, women entrepreneurs, but I think we're particularly bad at it. Um, no, I think men about it to end, but just in a slightly different way. You know, we think we've got to be tough and or to serve others and pick up their workload and, you know, or keep going because that's what entrepreneurship's about. And, and all these misconceptions that we translate as put ourselves lost, don't look after ourselves, give up our weekend, work harder than anybody else. And, and you're right, of course, that in the end causes all the burnout and the mental health problems and very sadly the suicides and drug issues and all sorts of things that so many entrepreneurs have, have end up doing, which is, is a tragedy. Um, so when you visit with an entrepreneur who might report that their biggest concern is time, they... They, they, yeah. They'll claim they, they feel like they're working around the clock. They have no free time, no family time, all of that. Where, where do you start unpacking that for them? What sort of things do you talk about? I think I would start, I mean, the first question I'd ask would be, how long have you been going? Because I don't think there's a lot you can do about that during the first year, couple of years. Um, and, you know, that's okay, because we can all do that for a couple of years. Uh, and, and not do horrendous damage to ourselves. But assuming that they've been doing it for a while, then something has gone wrong. They've either not grown enough or grown too much. In other words, there's a sort of certain place where you can't afford to, to have decent people to spread the weight. And that's if you haven't grown enough. But if you've grown over the amount you can cope with <clears throat> that, but can't afford the good people, you're stuck in this um, sort of central abyss of, of Death Valley where you're just pushing yourself into the ground and getting nowhere. And I think that's the danger zone is, is between those two, happy, you know, happy work life whatever but you know balance of single person with a few people on the team having great fun no great pressure to massive company with that or not massive company but you know say 40 50 staff and you know it's a whole different ball game to cope with but not geared it right so they haven't got capable people who are as ambitious as them and the leaders themselves alongside them because there comes a time when you just can't do it yourself. Yeah. 
you know, in, in oftentimes when I work with entrepreneurs who have been at their business for some time and they've they've reached a certain level of productivity and profitability, but yet they've kind of hit hit the plateau or hit the wall for growth beyond that. Inevitably, there are some basics that have been overlooked or ignored uh, having to do with strategic placement of people and yeah. systems. And I, I start usually with, with those owners and say, what is your exit plan? Do you, do you have a vision that you're going to sell this thing one day or give it to family or, or whatever? Because if you are still involved in the day-to-day, -day, you do not have a saleable business. Absolutely. Plain Absolutely. and simple. It's, again, it's you know you're seeing totally from my hymn sheet. With anybody of any business, I would say you should have a B plan that you're creating something that is of value, that is sellable, small value, big value, middle value, whatever. But you just don't know what life's going to throw at you. And there may come a day for completely unexpected reasons that you need to walk away from that business. And unless you've got it in sellable condition, you're not going to be able to. Plus, as you so rightly say, you know, it is those foundations of systems, people, whatever, that make growth easy. Without it, you are just going to go around in circles, chasing your tail and burning out. Yeah. I've got two situations I'm familiar with here locally, and it both both of them happen to be related to veterinary care, you know, uh, right. pet doctors. Uh, one gentleman spent his whole life building a practice and got to the stage of life where he wanted to retire, and he looked around and tried to find buyers. And in his mind, he said, well, I've built this clientele. Surely there's value there. Yeah. Well, with you being the only doctor in this shop, no, there is no value no. because no. those people are loyal to you, not to some other tangible service or product. And when yeah. you go away, they're going to go away. So there is no loyalty in that regard. And then the, but, but parallel to that, there's another uh, veterinary doctor that, that I actually use and I've watched him. He has gone from essentially that one man mindset. He, well, he was actually in a partnership, but he broke off and he started building a practice that now is a massive machine. And yes, he still provides service. He's still a practicing veterinarian, but he's got enough other resources and assets that people identify more with the practice than they do with him. He has a saleable business. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, is one of the challenges, isn't it? Because, of course, with your customers and, and indeed any of your stakeholders, they all want you. I, you know, I remember it coming to a point in, in my office and, you know, where I was really stressed wanting another and saying to my sort of right hand, you know, I've had enough. They all want a bit of me. And it was exactly what it felt like. Everybody was tearing me, you know, we want this, we want this, we want this. Every customer wanted to speak to me, you know, to, for me to, to check over their order personally. You can't do it. You have to 
let your babies go. And that means your team, um, your uh, customers, all of it has to, go, has to go. You can't do it all yourself and you can't, you know, and, and equally on the flip side, there's no value in doing it either. Right. <clears throat> so, Jan, back to your basic approach with with companies. If an entrepreneur says, I've got a startup idea, I've, I've already secured a little bit of funding or I have resources, I just want a guide on this journey. What uh, what what do you really do with them and for them through that process? I think that if they're at that stage, then we can look at strategy, you know, which includes obviously the exit plan and making building something of value, which is it's hugely exciting. And it, it includes almost the constant chicken and egg thing of, you know, getting, but, um, but with both funding and people, you need a runway of time, don't you, to get the funding in place in time so that you can get the bigger premises. Um, because funding isn't, it, it's not a question, and this is one of the mistakes people make of thinking, oh, well, you know, we're doing frightfully well, so I'll go looking for a new premises today. Oh, but that means I've got to go and get funding. Oh, well, that's going to take a year, you know, absolutely stuck. And it's the same with people. You're not going to be able to find senior level staff tomorrow, embed them and have them up and running tomorrow. It takes time. And so it's this jigsaw puzzle of um, strategy, which people have to get their head around. Very early startups are used to firefighting and solving the problem by an instant fix. And, and there's this transition to strategizing properly, I think, has to go on. Yeah, you know one one element that um, I've observed and and I talk to my clients about is the idea that unlike big business, where unless you're talking about a giant merger and acquisition scenario, but just normal uh, business as usual, when there are uh, key decisions to be made and key milestones to be met in the strategy and in the plan. The big business tends to, if you plotted everything, it, it tends to be sort of a smooth growing, you know, curve. But in small business, it it is there is no nice gentle curve. It's giant stair steps. <laughs> yeah, that it is. And uh, and and just to prove a point, it. it it, you know, it may be something like, okay, I want to get out of this rental facility I'm in, and I want to I want to buy a building or I, I want to build a building. Well, that's a major capex that has to happen, and so that's yeah. one of those giant stair step things. But but even on more simple terms, if, if you you know have a a key piece of machine machinery and it has a daily output of say a hundred units. And you're ramping up, rocking along, and and all of a sudden this whale of an account shows up, and now they need 500 units. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you going to do? You got to go invest in you know four more machines to make that happen, and that becomes that giant burden. And if you don't have the funding, if you don't have the mindset, if you don't have the team, all of those compound that giant stair step. Very true, and I think company. some people have to accept that. 
if they're not ready for that giant step, the wise thing is to say, no, thank you very much, but we can't cope with your order. Because if they take it on, they will default. And then if you can bet your bottom dollar that somebody giving them an order of that size has got all sorts of clauses and they're going to be in serious right. trouble. Right. Yeah, I actually learned the hard way in, in one of my business chapters of life. I um, had a company and along came, and we were we were doing reasonably well, but along came this, I, I call it the whale opportunity, you know, and this, this gentleman said, I've got all these things going on and, and this is going to launch in September and we, you know, we're going to need immediate capacity to do X, Y, and Z. And I tried to do as much due diligence as I could on, on the veracity of the, the promise and it all checked out. Everybody, all the sources, all the parties that were involved agreed that that's exactly what was going to happen. So it, it sort of all the spotlights turned to me and because and, I was a cog in the chain of events for this thing to happen. And they asked me, do you have the capacity to do that? And I said, well, I don't right now, but I can I can get it quickly. And I happened to be renting in an in a office building and there was adjacent space so I could just push walls out and expand laterally on the floor I was on. So I pulled the trigger, talked to the landlord, you know, grabbed that space and it, yeah. it like tripled my footprint. And you know where I'm going with the story, the deal fell through. The Rock company. whale of a volume evaporated overnight. Ouch. And um, you know, had to go hit myself in the head with a baseball bat a couple of times and, and say, you know, how in the world am I now going to, you know, fill this space and yeah. literally pay the bills on the, the new rent? And, and it's a very wise, wise story, you know. Um, I had a similar one where uh, um, we were offered a white labeling deal, um, you know, and it seemed fantastic, you know, we were going to get X numbers of um, orders per week and, you know, it was going to keep three quarters of the staff with regular work and, you know, what was not to like, but uh, absolutely right. You know, they sort of two years in, I'm sure they'd planned to do it, but we hadn't known they'd planned to do it. It was, sorry, we haven't got any more work for you. And, you know, absolutely just overnight disaster, you know, loads of people, loads of space, problems. Um, yeah. And that made me a lot more chary because I had a situation after that when um, a household name with sort of shops in every town sort of saying I won't name, but came along and said, you know, will you make stuff for us? And I said, well, yeah, sure. You know, it sounded fantastic. So, so exciting. And we got further down the road and like all those big deals, they wanted to um, slightly alter the product for them. They wanted to play around with it. They wanted to squeeze the margins. You know, it was all going to be their way, their way, their way. And partly through that experience, you know, of, of like you had of, of being landed in a complete soup or whatever, um, you know, after a few years down the line. And partly because I just looked and those margins were so tight you know, I, I just thought this is just too dangerous. And I turned down a really insanely good deal, it seemed. And everybody thought I'd lost the plot, but I've never regretted it because, you know, it could have done for us in, in a couple of months. 
and I think it would have done. I think it would have gone far. Yeah. Yeah, as uh, one of my banking mentors back in my banking days said, when the margin is thin, you can't make it up on volume. <laughs> uh, yeah, so true. And, and you know, we're all very easily seduced by quantity and some big, some big orders. But if they don't pay, it doesn't matter how big they are. Right. Right. Well, yeah, that, and that's another whole ball game. Well, yeah, also, yes, if they literally don't pay too. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, slow pay and everything. Yeah. Um, well, Jan, I tell you what, this has been great. I, I think we're about up on time here for this episode. Tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Absolutely. I'd love to hear from any of your listeners and always talk entrepreneurship till the cows come home. And if they've got any questions, delighted to answer. So I'm very easy. My website is www.jancavell.co.uk. Okay. And, and I've got all social folks, media and stuff on there. As always, folks, we'll have that info in the show notes. So just uh, click the links below and, and you can hop over there and, and see more of Jan's story. So I think that in, in my way of summing up here, I want to encourage folks. I know I've got listeners that are living in the corporate world right now and maybe in the back of their mind, they've they've got an idea of leaving the corporate world and, and going into entrepreneurship. And it is a journey. It is certainly doable, but uh, it helps to have a guide and a coach and a, and a partner that can help shape your plan, your strategy, and all those things to optimize the opportunity. So if, if, if I learned anything in, in my venture down entrepreneur lane is that, um, you know, if you... Um, if you fire prematurely without a good uh, target in mind, you're you're going to be working real hard to recover from that for quite some time. <laughs> oh, true, Doc. So uh, a little bit of planning, a little bit of strategy, a little bit of analysis on the front end. And if that's not your forte, that's where an expert like Jan can come in and, and really give you that help. So... Uh, think about that. And, and for those of you that have already made the leap and you're working it, but you realize you've you've kind of hit a roadblock, uh, think about, you know, finding that help, that advisory help and and getting through the the rest of the journey on, on, on a more successful way. So absolutely. We all hit roadblocks and I know plenty of them personally. <laughs> Well, and, and quite frankly, that's that's the reason Jan and I get to do what we do. We uh, we share a passion for helping others avoid the pitfalls that yeah. we've experienced and climbed out of. And uh, if 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 you can short circuit that kind of learning by simply talking with someone who knows better, uh, you'll be much better off for it. And Definitely. so. On that note, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and wish you a great day. Come back and see us again real soon. Take care. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.